Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Roger, and I'm joined by my co-host, Navaneeth. How are you doing, Nav? Hey, Roger. I'm good. Fantastic to hear it. And we're also joined by our guest today, Jackie Lebenson, a biology PhD student here at Western. How are you doing, Jackie? I'm great. How are you? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Excited for the podcast today. So do you want to take us through uh, some of the initial steps of uh, how you got here to Western in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I'm a longtime Western student. I actually did my undergraduate degree here. I graduated in 2014, and that's when I discovered my love for biology and insects, and I got involved in a lab here, and I did my honors thesis in biology here, and then I was sucked in to come back for a master's, ah. and I transferred to a PhD, and wow. eight years later, here I am still at Western. <laughs> Your blood has been officially signed over. <laughs> yeah, it's purple. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you're having a good time. Yeah, yeah, I love Western. Mm-hmm. The community's always been great, and grad school at Western is also, it's been a completely different experience than undergrad. Um, right. In a very good way. <laughs> so when you started with the undergrad, were you, um, like, and what, what made you stick to it? What made you stick to um, a, a lot of um, A lot of it was the field that I was researching. Right. I study insect physiology, and I always just have loved animals, and then I discovered insects and how hmm. cool they are and how many mm. different adaptations they have to live in all the environments that they live in. And I found a supervisor that um, really fostered my love for that. And I've kind of stuck with him ever since and started to study some really cool things. Such as? Such as. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I study um, a species of beetle called the Colorado potato beetle. And specifically, how it survives the winter. Um, It's a pest species, so most people care about killing it. Um, Because it eats a lot of the world's potato plants. But I... Mm, I love my chips. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we all do. But I'm actually more interested in how it survives. Um, I just want to know how its body works and how it changes its physiology over the winter um, to survive because it gets really cold. I really like that dichotomy, how unfortunately they're a pest insect, but you're really looking at how they, you know, go about surviving during Mm. the harsh uh, winterization, if that's a proper term for it. Yeah, yeah. Basically. And has your entire um, PhD thesis or your entire uh, studies here at Western uh, been uh, surrounding the winterization of the beetle? So my my master's to PhD transition has been. I actually started out in my undergrad studying crickets. (laughs) Okay. Um, And kind of also how they survive the winter, but they're more wimpier. Um, So (laughs) kind of what we call chill tolerance instead of cold tolerance. So I studied those for a bit. um, And then when I started my master's, my supervisor said, hey, I have this really cool project working on these beetles. Are you interested? And I jumped because they're so cute. They're little mm-hmm. orange beetles with black stripes. And um, they're just really cool because of what they can do. <laughs> so these badass beetles, where do I find them? Like, Yeah, we I find them everywhere. <laughs> if, you, if you go to a potato field in the summer in London, you'll see them everywhere munching on the leaves. Um, they actually evolved in Mexico. And South America, particularly where potatoes evolved, so Mm. like the Andes. And over time, they've just moved up towards the United States and Canada and eventually over to Asia and Europe. So they're kind of everywhere now. And um, they they span a very wide latitudinal range, so from Mm -hmm. southern United States to northern Finland. So they are literally everywhere. Wow. And and how does, uh, you know, I guess typically... uh, different species are localized to certain geographical regions. How does a species like the, you know, the Colorado um, beetle end up transversing all, all across the globe as it has? 
well, it's gotten really good at adapting to new environments <laughs> because <laughs> not only does it have the ability to survive like a hot southern United States summer, mm-hmm. but it can survive over winter in, as I said, like northern Finland and close up to the Arctic Circle. So it's just really good at, as it slowly spreads throughout different types of areas, it's really good at quickly adapting to, to the new environments. Um, and I actually just, I think I saw an article that was released in either Nature or Science the other day about these beetles saying that parts of their genome... Um, are actually mobile. So they have all these what are called transposable elements Hmm. that can jump from one gene to the next, and that helps them um, become really adapted to whatever environment they're faced with. As in they're mutating themselves? Almost. Almost. They have these... They have these, yeah, these kind of mobile genes within themselves, and they exactly they can mutate different parts of their genome. So that be on almost <laughs> wow. So, so would that be almost like a really quick paced form of evolution that you yeah, can exactly. In them? And that's wow. how, again, as I mentioned, they can go from living in Mexico to northern mm-hmm. Finland. It's pretty cool. That's All incredible. Right, so, so what's happening inside this beetle? That's that's making it resistant to these cold temperatures. What is it? Yeah, so the main thing um, that I'm interested in that I study is that it enters this form of hibernation um, mm. called diapause. Okay. And it's a specific type of hibernation because it's found in, in most insects um, that overwinter in cold areas and some other types of arthropods like crustaceans and spiders. Um, but this diapause is specific to insects and what characterizes it is that these beetles suppress their metabolic rate so the metabolism is barely there and for example these beetles can suppress their metabolic rate by about 88 percent over the winter and because they're not producing energy they're not expending energy they can kind of just sit in this sessile state and they bury under the soil and enter this diapause and can ride out the winter until conditions get a little bit better it's like a more serious version of hibernation yeah yeah exactly Mm -hmm. because some Mammalian hibernators, like let's say a ground squirrel or even some bats or turtles or other rodents, Mm -hmm. they hibernate over the winter, but they also have fur to help them out and they can thermoregulate their body to some extent. And often they're hibernating for short bouts and they can wake up a bit and go back into hibernation, Mm -hmm. whereas these beetles are in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. They're underground, they're in this diapause dormant state for months at a time. And do these do all beetles uh, of the species go undergo this uh, winterization, this diapause state, or would those in the southern hemispheres where it's warmer not need to undergo this kind of transformation? That is a great question. That's actually the case. Um, you see uh-huh. these beetles that are in kind of summer conditions all year round. Uh, they won't necessarily enter diapause. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, what is it that you found out about these beetles that that helps them? you know, winter out these conditions? Yeah, so the main question I really wanted to ask was, how do they suppress their metabolic rate? Because a lot of people know that insects in diapause, well, they suppress their metabolic rate. On to the next question. But no one is really asking, well, how do they do that? Hmm. So I looked a little bit further, and what I actually found is that what they're doing is that they're breaking down their mitochondria in a specific tissue, which is their insect flight muscle, so what they use to fly. They're breaking down their mitochondria. What is the mitochondria? Mm-hmm. The mi- that's a very, another good question. The mitochondria, also known as the powerhouse of the cell, actually produces all the energy you need. So all of your cells have mitochondria in them, and they produce energy in the form of ATP um, to basically run your metabolism and keep it going. So these beetles are very wise, and they figure, well, if we don't have any mitochondria, we don't have to do any work. We don't have to waste any energy. So mm. they just get rid of them. So they can drop down their metabolism and just wait it out until conditions are better. And then kind of on demand, they can regrow their mitochondria and kind of continue their springtime activities. Wow, that that seems like a very, very intelligent beetle. 
I would think so. <laughs> uh, would this uh, process of the diapause, would it be a, a conscious or an intentional action, or is it more correlated or associated with the time of year or the temperature that the beetle you know, unconsciously kind of experiences? Yeah, another great question. Um, diapause itself is it's what, we, it's what we say it's pre-programmed. So in most insects, it actually is cued by a change in photo period, so a hmm. change in day length. So hmm. we see in the winter, the days get shorter. We want to go stay in our rooms and watch Netflix and not go outside. <laughs> uh, the beetles, instead of watching Netflix, they will enter diapause. I see. <laughs> and it is pre-programmed in that there are specific genes involved in that transition between a non-diapausing beetle and a diapausing beetle. Wow, that's very, very interesting. And just, I guess, an extension of that question would be, would you be able to manipulate the time frames or manipulate the diapause and maybe, yeah. That's, that's the next chapter of my thesis, actually. <laughs> Getting a step ahead. Yeah, Sorry so not only do we know that they break down their mitochondria, but um, we are also taking a look at what genes are being expressed that might trigger this breakdown of their mitochondria. And we are finding that genes specific to this process called the mouthful called mitophagy mm. um, seem to be involved. So you're, if you're a scientist, you might know the term autophagy, which is essentially the cell's way of eating broken down parts of its cell up. So you have a damaged protein or something wrong with your cell, you trigger this autophagy pathway okay. that breaks things down and kind of puts it in the trash bin so your cell can keep growing and doing what it needs to do. Mitophagy is the same, but it's specific to mitochondria. So we have these beetles that are triggering these mitophagy pathways. And what I'm going to be exploring in the next part of my thesis is actually using genetic engineering techniques to, let's say, knock down this gene responsible for mitophagy and okay. see, well, maybe that doesn't break down their mitochondria. Maybe they don't enter diapause or maybe they don't survive. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're like specifically targeting each mechanism over there and seeing which one is the key for this. Exactly, because right. what I've done so far is kind mm -hmm. of describing this mechanism describing a phenomenon that happens over winter, but the only way I can actually tell people this is mm -hmm. the way it works is if I knock something down or manipulate it, as you said, and see if that affects. So you mean no one, no one, no one else has looked into this before? Well, no one's looked into this to the same extent okay. because there was a paper maybe in the 1960s that showed something similar, and they said, oh, cool, these beetles and diapause break down their mitochondria, and no one's really touched it since so there was this kind of low-hanging fruit in the literature that I found. It was actually a funny story because we decided, or I should say I decided, that this was going to be a big part of my thesis. And as I started looking more into it, I found out that their mitochondria were gone. And then about a week later, I found this paper that had already showed that their mitochondria were gone. Okay. <laughs> so part of me was like, oh, no, someone's already found this. This isn't cool mm -hmm. at all. And it was published 60 and it was years published earlier. Six years earlier. <laughs> but the cool thing is that's where it ended. No one's looking at the gene. No one had looked at the genes that were expressed. No one had tracked it through uh, after diapause. Mm -hmm. Like no one, how it regrows the Exactly. Okay. People had kind of showed that it happens but nobody had really explained how or even why. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm getting into. So there's been, a, you know, a, a large increase in the number of techniques that you could use to study uh, th these processes. And obviously you've begun to go about uh, studying how, how exactly this diapause begins and the metabolism that goes along with it. Metabolic rate, rather. Exactly. And do you mind touching on exactly how you go about uh, testing these things? Yeah. So um, the cool thing about these beetles and why I'm using them, not just because they're cute or because people care about them as pests, uh, but they have their genome sequenced. 
And actually, a couple weeks ago, that big paper finally was published. So we have access to their entire genome, and it's what we say annotated, meaning someone has went through and described all the genes that are there. So I can look at these beetles, and if I find that one gene responsible for mitophagy, that's upregulated. So now I have that sequence. And I can use that sequence to do things like knock that gene down. For example, using a technique, um, it's been around for a while actually, called RNA interference, hmm. which basically allows you to take a copy of that gene that you know the sequence from the genome and essentially mute or knock down that gene in your animal. So with a simple injection of a molecule of DNA, I can knock down this gene that's responsible for mitophagy and then see if that beetle enters diapause, see how long it's in diapause for, see if maybe there's other things associated, maybe there's other damage to the cell that I'm not seeing that could be mitigated by that. And if I understand uh, what, what your description has been so far throughout the conversation we've had already, uh, you are specifically targeting the gene that is capable of breaking down the mitochondria, which then stops the metabolism or the metabolic rate and allows these uh, beetles to enter diapause to begin with. Exactly. And so, is it the same gene which is responsible for for regrowing those mitochondria? That's a great question. I haven't looked at that yet. I'm okay. again this is this is hot off the press mm -hmm. research. So I haven't had a chance to actually measure these genes. Or I should say I'm a really talented undergrad student that's been working with me, has been doing the measuring of these genes. And we haven't had a chance to look at the after diapause samples yet. Okay. So it would be really interesting to see if there are genes maybe responsible for what we say the biogenesis of mitochondria if those okay. were expressed as the beetle comes out of diapause. Okay, so where else do we see mm, the breakdown of mitochondria? Like, Well, in this sense, the act of breakdown isn't right. seen in a lot of places. That's why it's so cool. But we see it in people who are aging because as you age, your mitochondrial function declines. For example, you have an aging person they often maybe won't be able to run a marathon, even if they could when they were younger. And it's because the tissue in their, their muscle tissue is breaking down. And along with that, their mitochondria are also breaking down. Hmm. Whereas these aging people, you can't just reverse this aging process and have their mitochondrial function shoot back up. Mm -hmm. So it would okay. be a really cool disease model. Mm -hmm. Or these beetles would be a really cool disease model to look at maybe how mitochondria lose their function and maybe one day figure out how to reinstate the function of mitochondria. So and you'd have 90-year-old con contestants in the Olympics. Exactly. And wow. then and then everyone would be allowed to compete. <laughs> so your results aren't simply limited to understanding more about how the beetle functions, but also these can have large-ranging implications for human development and aging and all these different kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, my, my primary interest in love is insects and how they <laughs> work course. and function. But, mm -hmm. I mean, if I can give some insight into how humans can function better, then might as well go with it because that would be awesome. Indeed would be very awesome. That's true. And it's it's always funny how you start off doing a research and then it's only later that you discover that, hey, this research actually has a lot of implications. Well. Yeah, and it's been really exciting. And before I even thought about how this could have implications to mm. humans, uh, I knew that it was kind of a big deal in my field because I actually, I went to an international conference last August that was, and I presented this work to a room full of insect diapause physiologists oh, wow. that have been doing this for years. And people saw my talk and were like, how come we never thought of that? This is mm. crazy. And people were getting really excited. And 
I even it even led to a small collaboration with the lab in the Czech Republic because they were kind of seeing parallel similar things in entirely different species of insect. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of converging onto something really cool and big. So it's not too often that you hear somebody say that they love insects and are as passionate about them as you are, uh, Jackie. Is there like? Can you tell us more about exactly what your passion or where your passion lies specifically? Do you do you like your work in the lab and? Yeah, I think the where my passion lies is doing basic science research. Um, I love asking really cool questions, and I learned in my undergrad that the coolest questions are with insects. <laughs> and I, I just really like learning how they work and how they're, they're just adapted to so many different types of environments. I mean, they make up about 80% of all species on Earth, so it makes sense that we would want to study them and learn a little bit more about how they do what they do. Very interesting. That's cool. Well, so um, I was at your 3MT talk the other day. Could you... And sir, what, what's the 3MT? Oh, all right. So um, the 3MT, that's, that's where you as a graduate student could talk about your thesis in three minutes to a general audience. Oh, okay. Using Very just cool. one static slide. And I was watching Jackie's talk and it was really cool the way she explains it. So now I'm wondering, um, what are the outlets do you have for your research? Yeah, so I really like communicating science and Mm -hmm. what I do. And I like being able to talk to a general audience because there was at one point where I had no idea what anyone was talking about in science. So I know how it feels to not understand. So I like to be able to communicate it easily and in a really effective way. Um, I'm also an artist at heart. Uh, I almost actually went into art history at Western, but I chose biology instead. Hmm. Weird, a weird path to go down. But I now kind of combine my art with my science, and I actually hmm. make all my own graphics. So for my three-minute thesis slide, I made an entirely new infographic of my beetle with my images of their mitochondria, and it was just a lot of fun. And I do that um, with posters I present at conferences, and I've gotten a lot of compliments because it's really easy just to make your own graphics. And instead of having a big box of text for an introduction on a poster, just have a pretty picture. More people will come to look at your poster. More people will bring you beer and talk to you about your poster. (laughs) Uh, And it's just a really fun way to to be creative in science and also tell a really cool story. That is true because, in fact, that's, that's the whole reason why we have GradCast over here. It's to talk about science to a general audience. Uh, you know, and not everybody is in science, but even if you're not in science, it's very effective and it's a really good skill to be able to communicate what exactly your area of interest or area of expertise is to the general population because in a lot of the cases, public funding goes into funding either the research or the science or whatever the program is that, that we're in higher education is to, to be for. So it's really important that the public understands exactly how uh, these things are going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think another reason, going back to the beginning of our talk, why I love Western so much, specifically why I love the lab that I work in, is because there's a big emphasis on if you can't communicate your science well, then you're not actually doing good science. You know, you need to be able to not only do the rigorous lab work, do your research, produce the data, but then also present it in a way that is really impactful and gets people excited about your work and also makes a difference in the field. 
I suppose if even if you have the uh, a Nobel Prize winning idea, if, if if other people or other scientists or the general public can't understand what the implications are or how it can affect them, then really, uh, yeah, how how wide ranging are those implications, right? Exactly. And I think it makes better teachers as well. Yeah, I that's another passion of mine. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. I like trying to make my students as excited as I am about animal physiology. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard, but <laughs> I well, try. Well, we're not even your students, but I can tell you that you've done a really good job <laughs> making us excited about the topic too. Thank you. So what are your uh, goals in the future then, following uh, the, f- uh, the end of your PhD? Yeah, so I'm hoping when I finish my PhD, hopefully that's sooner rather than later, <laughs> uh, to, to do a postdoc and continue with research and one day be a professor. Um, and teach and do more research and live the academic life. And still working with your prized insects. Uh, maybe, hopefully. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably try some new ones on for size. Okay. <laughs> uh, it'd be cool to see if this mitochondrial breakdown phenomenon is seen in other diapausing insects as well. Hmm. I'm actually curious. Since you mentioned these beetles are everywhere, have you found? Have you ever ran to this beetle on campus? Not on campus, but Uh I do have a really funny story. Uh I was recently in Austria this past fall, and I was on a hike in the Austrian Alps where there aren't any potatoes growing, but I was on the trail, and my friend that I was with stops me in my tracks and says, oh, my God, Jackie, you have to look down, look what's on the trail. Mm -hmm. And there's a Colorado potato beetle just ambling along on this trail in the Austrian Alps. Um, So that was pretty funny. I have no idea how it got there. Maybe somehow it had come with me in my bag. Probably not, but I felt really bad for it because it clearly didn't have any potatoes to eat. So it was probably going to die soon, but it was just really interesting to see. And now I have a cool picture that I can use on all my presentations because I'm in the Austrian Alps holding a Colorado potato beetle. So you have actual real-life proof that (laughs) these things are everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you have these actual beetles in the lab, and you work yeah, with them there. Yeah, I house them in the lab. I don't do any fun field work, uh, unfortunately, maybe one day. But I house a population of beetles in the greenhouses at Western, and then I use basically glorified fridges <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. with controlled temperature and light cycles to induce diapause. So um, your research, it sounds really interesting, and I'm sure there are people out there who want to get in touch with you. Um, what... What means do you suggest for people who want to get in touch with you? Like, how are you available? Yeah, so I am pretty active on social media. I have a Twitter account. It, uh, my Twitter handle is Jackie Lebs, J-A-C-K-I-E-L-E-B-Z. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I will occasionally tweet funny things. At least I think I'm funny. I don't know if other people <laughs> do. And I also have a personal website, and it's JackieLebenson.com. And eventually, some of my graphics will all be up there for people to see. And I hope to kind of start a blog talking about how to communicate effective science and and teach people how to be excited about their work and graphically and um, be able to illustrate their science in a really creative way. So you spoke a lot about how, you know, you used to be or you still are very much into art. You almost went into art as a as a post-secondary uh, major to begin with. So and a lot about the graphic design in, in the context of science. So have you thought about more or have you integrated the two together, the science and the art in any way? Or do you plan to in the future? Uh, well, I mean, I do, as I mentioned, with my personal my personal life, all the presentations I give at conferences and in my classroom, I try and make things as visually appealing as possible. And I hope maybe one day, if I can learn how to be professional with my graphics, uh, to maybe even 
help other people and consult or even be that person that, oh, you want a cool graphic of your science? Jackie's the girl to make it for you. <laughs> uh, so hopefully one day I can get that. But I should concentrate on like finishing my thesis first. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what, that's what we all are here for. Yeah. Well, it's always important to have uh, other uh, avenues on the side, though, because the work-life balance, especially in graduate school, as we can all attest to, is uh, yeah, very important. Yeah, and it's such a small thing, and not everyone believes me when I say making scientific graphics makes me happy, but instead of me <laughs> having to buy some paints and canvas and have my creative outlet that way, I can just do it on my computer and, and get more excited about science. And making these infographics also helps me think about my research in different ways, and it, it's kind of a big cycle of productivity, so I can relax and be creative, but also have something to show for it in my research. Well, Jackie, I really want to thank you for joining us here on GradCast today. You've spoken uh, a great deal about uh, the different physiology and the metabolic rate of how uh, these beetles and different insects in general go through diapause or different form of hibernation. And we're all very much more well off because of uh, having you on the, on the show today. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's fun. Um, so... Uh, you can catch us, GradCast, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW. Uh, you can also check us out at gradcast.ca. And if you'd like to get involved with the show at all, uh, be a guest on the show or uh, help it with hosting at all, you can always email us at uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com. Uh, this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, once again, my name is Roger. I've been co-hosted today by my friend Navaneeth. And we were joined today by Jackie Lebenzen. Thank you very much and have a wonderful week. Take care. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.